You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. On February 15th of 1912, the president of the University of Washington wrote a letter to the, to the pastor of University Presbyterian Church, 1912. At the time, the president of the University of Washington was named Thomas Kane, for whom Kane Hall is named. And at that time, the name of the pastor here was Norman Harrison. And Thomas Kane may have seen in the news that there was something interesting happening up here at the corner of 47th Street and 15th Avenue. Just three days after the letter was sent, February 15th, the congregation was to march up the street into its first building of its own. It was a a wooden chapel where they would worship. And the president wanted to encourage the congregation in its mission to give witness to Jesus Christ at the university. He was clearly impressed. Uh, Dr. Kane wrote, Your people are putting forth heroic efforts. That's you. He, he commended them for the unusual work that you're doing and, and the loyal support that the members of the church are giving. And then he says, this is interesting, that identification with the church, quote, is a matter of vital importance to the moral and religious welfare of every student. What's he saying? He's saying, we need you here at the university. And that's why we're here, isn't it? In 1895, the university moved its campus from downtown up into the backwoods of the the U District, as it was thought of at that time. And uh, because First Presbyterian Church Seattle said, we need a witness to Jesus Christ, a, 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 a live congregation of faith right there in and for that university. Hold on. Do I hear a cell phone? Someone got their cell phone on. We try and turn ourselves. Oh, shoot. I'm sorry. Oh, I better take this one. Uh, um, this will be quick. Hello? Uh, hello? Must have been another f- crank call. Let's take another offering. Oh, there we go. (laughs) Hello? Let me put you on speaker, Lee. Hey, George. Ah. Yeah, hi, Lee. Listen, um, I'm just about starting my sermon here. Can we talk about this another time? Uh, Well, actually, no, George, because I can see where you're headed. I'm worried about you. You're worried about me. I know you were the president of the university, Lee. That's great. I'm happy for you. But I'm trying to get into my sermon right now. Uh, do you think we're, we're talking about the university, and maybe we could, you and I could talk later. Yeah, but look, George, if you're, you've got to get your facts straight, man. My facts straight. Look, Lee, I got the internet. Uh, if you can't believe the internet, what 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 can you believe? Uh, I think I got the facts. Well, okay. Good luck, George. I thought I could help. All right, Lee. Uh, where are you? Oh, the... All right, Lee, come on up here and give me a hand. <laughs> hey, listen, George, you know, if we're going to focus on the...
from the university. How about some banners? Uh, you know, we could we could use purple and gold. Those are the purple and the gold. Colors, you know? <laughs> Look, we're not doing an advertisement for the U here, Lee. You're gonna have to. Uh, do you know? By the way, do you know why the school colors are purple and gold, Lee? I have no idea, George. You don't know? No. Well, it comes from Byron, actually. Uh, Byron wrote a poem, one of the stanzas. The poem's called The Destruction of Sennacherib. Lord and he Byron? wrote, The Assyrians came down like the wolf on the fold, and his cohorts were gleaming in purple and gold. And the sheen of their spears was like stars on the sea when the blue waves roll nightly on deep Galilee. Do you know that? I did not know that. That's very cool, yeah, I got that from Wikipedia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, so Lee, yeah, you're president of the university. You've been around the university for 40 years, as you say. Um, that's a lot. Your, your bio, which I got online, uh, tells me you came in 1968 as a professor of bioengineering. You became director of the department in 1980, associate dean of the medical school in 1993, provost in 1996, and in 2002, president of the university. In 2005, the governor appointed you as the first executive director of the Life Sciences Discovery Fund, and your title now is? Well, that's President Emeritus. President Emeritus. Emeritus is Latin. E means you're out, and Emeritus means you deserve it. <laughs> I hardly believe that. Listen, what's your take on the University of Washington? It's a great place. It's a wonderful place. It's not an easy place. Uh, it, it stretches you. It blesses you. Uh, and it helps you grow your faith if you have your spirit open and your eyes open. Hmm. It's, a, it, it's been amazing. Um, you know, you, you summarize some of my career path, and there's lots of twists and turns, but... In some ways, the most significant have been the pain points, the risk things. Uh, And the single most significant of those was I was about 10 years into my academic career, and suddenly everything was crumbling. It was clear that I was failing. I wasn't going to get my grant funded, and I was going to be out of there. Your career was imploding. My career was imploding. And, you know, I'd come into the university with a very well-developed faith and a very clear sense of my professional goals and identity. But they were quite separate. And one of the things that that experience did for me, I I agonized for months and months over all this, is I finally surrendered my career to the Lord. And that started me on this path of understanding what surrender is. And it's been hugely important ever since. Okay, so I want to hear more about that. I'm sure we all do. But before we get there, um, just tell us a little bit about this great university. Give us some of the facts that you think maybe I need improvement. Well, a lot of people in Washington don't understand it very well. It's, it's very big. It's very complex. It's very intertwined with the state of Washington. And it's much more uh, visible nationally and internationally than, than people realize. For example, there are 49,000 students, undergraduates, professional graduate students. Wow. Uh, it's probably 50,000 employees, something on that order. The annual budget is $3.5 billion. Uh, and, and, and the list goes on. It's really big enterprise. Uh, and it's very um, complex. It's like a holding company. You've got separate business lines for housing and dining and athletics and all these other things. And we all think of education, but that's only one part of what a university does for the community. 
And, uh, and 75% of the undergraduates come from the state of Washington. Most of the vast majority of the alumni are right in this region. Uh, 250 companies have been spun out of the university. The list goes on. Most of the professional uh, education in the state takes place there. And the reciprocity is really phenomenal in the last fundraising campaign. You know, donors from all across the, the state contributed $2.6 billion to that university. But its visibility is really astonishing. It's number one public university in the United States in the receipt of federal grant dollars, number two of all universities. Uh, in the international ranking systems, Chowtung University has a, a ranking system for university impact, and the UW is considered 16th most impactful university in the world. Wow. And the Times of London says they're 24th, and, and, and you know, and the list goes on. It's the number one uh, source of graduates that go on to the Peace Corps. Uh, it's just, uh, it's really impressive. That is impressive. The send the most graduates into the Peace Corps. And, you, and tell us about this fundraising campaign. It was 2.6 billion with a B. Billion dollars over eight years. Eight it's years. A phenomenal testimony to what people think of the university and, and their aspirations. For it. But it's also a, a, an indicator of the migration of this university to be more like a private, to learn from the private institutions. More like a private? Like what? What does that mean? Well, you know, the state funding has fallen enormously. It's, it's now half of what it was four years ago. And, and the university is having to try to sustain a public mission, but to act more like a private institution. And that means fundraising campaigns. And, of course, it means adopting the secret academic handshake. The secret academic handshake. Oh. I get my alumni newsletter, and it's not so secretly. We all know it. Uh, well, all right. Tell us. Uh, we want to, Our mission here is to share hope in Jesus Christ, and the university is a big part of it. And uh, I wonder if you can tell us how can we share hope uh, in Jesus Christ with the university? Well, uh, I don't think you can, George. You can't? No. Not oh. with the institution of the university. I think you can and you must share hope with the people okay. of the University of Washington. So we can't share hope with an institution. Well, but yeah. with the people within the institution, the folks you need who... to understand the institution and what it means and particularly the influence it has on the people so you understand who it is that you're trying to... All right, well, then I want you to talk about that a little bit, the people right. and the influence right. of that culture on the people right. that are there. It must be a great place to live and to work. I, mean, I think stimulating conversations, free tickets to sporting events, lunches on the Ave, right. summer's mm -hmm. off. Yeah. This has got to be, right. These are the happiest people on the planet. Uh, yeah, right. Um, no? Well, one of the great perks of being president, by the way, is you get to pay the same amount for parking as everybody else. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, it, it, it's a wonderful place, uh, George. It, it really is. We used to say that when we were in the administration, that a joy of being there is at least once a week you discover something wonderful going on in this institution that you never heard of before. It's huh. just phenomenal. The level of energy and ideas and, and the variety of what goes on there is just incredible. And the organization of a university is different than most other institutions. You know, it, it, it's really focused on the people. So, I mean, you have a structure and budgets and all that stuff, but you go to great lengths to recruit people. 
because they're smart, they're energetic, they're driven, they're compulsive, and impossible to manage, right? And then you hope for the best. That's, that's basically the management philosophy. But the, um, it's amazing how well it works. They're, the results are simply spectacular. Um, but the flip side of that is that you, uh, you bring those people in and you give them a great deal of freedom. And you don't hold them accountable to following directions. You hold them accountable to having an impact. And, and that leads, in turn, to pressure on everybody in the institution to have impact. Publish or perish. Yeah, exactly right. So and, it's a competitive environment. Well, it is. It's, it's collegial in a lot of ways. Uh, but, um, but it's got a, a, an underlying focus on individual achievement, whether it's grades or degrees or, or publications or... or uh, um, some kind of accomplishments. You know, I, I sometimes say the HR system consists of going to great lengths to recruit you, saying, George, welcome, we're so thrilled to have you as a new assistant professor. We give you a coil of rope, and we come back in six years to see whether you've scaled the wall of expectations or hung yourself. Ouch. And, yeah, and it's, it, 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 ouch is about, well, it isn't really quite that harsh, of course, but it is a very demanding environment. So what effect does that have on the individuals that are there? You're saying to me that the greatest challenge in the university for us to consider is not religious skepticism. It's something else. There's lots of skepticism in the academic environment, and there's lots of tendency to be dismissive of faith. But I think from our perspective, trying to share hope with people in the institution, the problem is not that. They, they are focused on one priority primarily. What's that? Achievement. Achievement. You know, George, in, in, the, in the academy, we don't worship money. A lot of the world worships money at the altar of money, right? We don't do that. And it's not because we're morally superior. It's because we don't have any money. <laughs> right? But instead... <laughs> You should be writing that grant proposal instead of being. <laughs> but, but we have our own idols. We have our own altar. And, and we basically we worship at the altar of prestige. Hmm. And our accomplishments, our achievements are focused on really good things. Mm-hmm. But we do them also to get recognition and prestige. And, and that is the metric. And it becomes our identity. So that you're saying the danger is that the stuff that you do becomes who you are. Exactly. And think of, think of that psalm we just read. You know, I really like the, uh, the NIV translation on, especially verse 8. You know, that's kind of the zinger for me. They talk about making idols. And then they say, those who make them will be like them. Hmm. And so will all who trust in them. And I think the power of those idols that we create... Uh, we underestimate how potent they are in our lives. And I think as we're going to share hope with people in the institution, we need to understand those pressures. They're all good things, you know, good motivations and good accomplishments. But they, the, the risk is they become so central that they become the essential identity of them. And it's, we all create our own idols. Well, that's what I was going to say, because I'm not an academic, as you may have noticed, but uh, I just play one on TV. But I, I feel subject to the same 
temptation. Sure. And this sure. psalm speaks right. to me. I think right. where I get my identity is different places. I'm tempted to find my identity as a parent or as a spouse or as a pastor, even, you know, good things, maybe even as a runner. <clears throat> and, to lose, and to lose track of the fact that my identity is in who God has made me to be and who he has redeemed me to be in Jesus Christ. That's right. the, right. the core and, identity. You know, I, I sometimes joke that I, I think we Christians have this saying, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, backwards. Of course he's our Savior. He's done that. That's accomplished. All we have to do is receive it. Ah, but is he my Lord? Well, now that's more of a daily decision. That's my job, is to confront that decision and to make him, not to throw away all those other things, because as you say, they're good things. Being a pastor is a pretty good thing. I'll get back to you. But it, it, <laughs> it, 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 it needs to have Jesus over the top of it. So the psalmist says, uh, trust in the Lord. Uh, there it is uh, three times. It's kind of the refrain. It's the chorus of this thing. Mm-hmm. Trust in the Lord, trust mm-hmm. in the Lord, trust in the Lord, because you know his heart. It's steadfast love and faithfulness. That's who he is. And you're saying that's the decision that we have to make on a daily basis. And I think it's, it's harder than it, than it sometimes seems. That's why surrender has become one of my principal faith words. For me, surrender is a daily uh, assignment. And it has at least a couple of dimensions to it. One is, it has, I have to deal with the fact that since I was a child, part of my tendency is to identify myself in terms of my competency. It's very important to me to be competent. And when my competence is in question, I'm shaken. I have to figure out how to subordinate that to the Lordship of Jesus. Hmm. And then a closely related thing that I think is particularly true for academics. You know, academics is a game of delayed gratification. You know, you go to graduate school and it, you yeah. learn some things, but it's also hazing. You go to the faculty and, it, and, you know, it goes on and on and on. It's an endurance contest. And so you have to have a plan. And therefore, you feel like you can plan. And one of the great things God has done for me multiple times in my career is to show me that I ain't got no plan. You know, over and over again, he has closed the door on the right, closed the door on the left, and sprung the trap door and put me someplace. And it's a place I didn't expect and a place for which I don't feel competent. And every time he's used those experiences to help me get better at, at this surrender thing. And I think I am getting better uh, gradually, and I can... I think I can smell the fragrance of joy that he offers. That's a great description of the trapdoor. I wonder if we're experiencing that as a church a little bit as we encounter new changes, new challenges, and fresh opportunities to share hope with people all around us. Mm-hmm. So given that culture and, and the, the life of individuals within that culture, how, what, what can we do as a church to share hope with those people? Well, I think the approach, George, is probably the, the same one we all know. I mean, you've got to get to know these people. You have to learn how to love them, and then you have to be there for them. I mean, Patty summarized it for us, right? Be there for them. And it's the same thing for everybody else. Uh, now, and, and for the academics, you need to understand something about the culture and all the forces and the pressures and the insecurities and anxieties that come with being an academic. Um, but you just need to be there. And you also, I think, need to be there when they go through the inevitable personal crises that we all go through. You know, one of the most significant things for me 
In 2001, I was provost of the University of Washington. It's easily the biggest, most challenging, most consuming job I've ever had. And I've been that, in that position for a few years. And all of a sudden, in 2001, our youngest son had an accident, had a severe traumatic brain injury, and he was in the neuro ICU at Harborview. He was there for 11 days. 26 years old. 26 years old. Jenny and I sat right about in there at the 5 o'clock service, and we said to the congregation in the community prayer time, please pray. Please pray for us and our son. And over here, we're sitting Darwin and Marie Avis, whom we never had known or even met. They were moved. They started to pray. And then they prayed daily. And then they wrote us a note saying that they were praying for us. And you know, the simple encouragement of that was really profound. But out of it also has come this deep friendship whereby we now encourage each other and we get the added blessing of seeing God at work in lives that are very different than ours. Well, that's what I call you know, being available, being willing to listen to the leading of the Holy Spirit, and, and, and just ministering in love. Uh, the Avis has demonstrated that to us, and I think that's a model for how we can uh, love and share hope with people in the university. So there's an opportunity for us, just as Darwin and Marie were able to show in a simple act of kindness the, the, the steadfast love uh, and, and faithfulness of our Lord, we have the opportunity to do the same. And I think there's an invitation here in what you share with us all, Lee, to uh, not be defined by what we do, but by what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And then we can do a lot of stuff of great importance and significance Absolutely right. in the world, but we do it out of a sense of security and joy, knowing who God is and what he's doing and has done. Uh, thank you very much for sharing your story with us. My pleasure. Today. My pleasure. And let's... <laughs> Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray over the wall into the university for those folks, for the people that are there. They're so dear to you, and uh, you've given your son, Jesus Christ, uh, uh, <clears throat> for them in love. And you are alive today uh, within them and eager for them to know that, that what you have done transforms all. And what you are doing gives us great confidence to do great things for the future. So we pray that for them, and we pray that for us. We pray that you'd help us, particularly those of us who feel like the trap door has just opened up and we've dropped into a room that's very um, strange and uncomfortable. May we know your grace in a special way there. May we surrender ourselves to you who is not only our Savior but also our Lord and be guided by you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.